Good morning. You all seem very alert. Of course, you are the alert ones here on time. I teach a class this quarter that starts at 8 a.m. two days a week, and I always begin class at exactly 8 a.m. And it's amazing. Most of the students are there at 8. There are always one or two who manage to come in a couple minutes late, but I think that's pretty good. Well, if you have your outline, you know that today we move to the second Sunday on the Christology of Hebrews. And today we purpose to discuss the priesthood of Christ and the humanity of Christ and his identification with the pilgrim journey of the believers. As I said last time, Christology is very important in Hebrews. Just in case you weren't here, let me again define the word Christology. All the ology words, are, as you know, are the technical words for the study of, like biology, zoology, so on. Christology is the study of Christ. It's the technical word for theological reflection on the person of Jesus Christ. Who is Jesus Christ? Hebrews, we also said last week, and we've said it other Sundays, and bears, I think, repeating, Hebrews is, in essence, a sermon. It's a pastoral instruction written to a group of believers who are in danger of abandoning their faith under pressure, perhaps under persecution, the threat of persecution, certain forms of social ostracism and pressures to cultural conformity that would deny their faith. And they are in danger of denying their faith, and the author of Hebrews wants to encourage them not to do that. And one of the ways he does that which is very powerful is he sets his exhortation in this Christological framework in which he argues that who Christ is and what Christ did is the basis for having hope and that Christ's identification with the pilgrim journey of the believer is the encouragement for the journey that leads to hope. So we'll look at that in particular the next two Sundays, when in our last two Sundays we're going to talk about the pilgrimage of the believers in Hebrews and then salvation and perfection in Hebrews, since the journey of the believers is about salvation. And in Hebrews it's often expressed in terms of perfection, And that has led to many theological struggles for the church. So we'll talk about that on the very last Sunday of this month. Last Sunday we talked primarily about those things in Hebrews that identify the divine nature of Christ, the deity of Christ. And we spent quite a bit of time on that and several questions that came up in connection with that. The priesthood of Christ is obviously the major 
discussion in Hebrews. It takes more space than any other single topic in this document. It is clear that the author to the Hebrews found his key, as it were, to explaining Jesus Christ in this context through the way he deals with priesthood. If it's appropriate for me to use this term, I think the author of Hebrews is actually rather clever. Now, clever is often a pejorative term or a term we don't associate with serious theology. But uh, the author of Hebrews is extraordinarily sophisticated in developing the argument that he does about priesthood. And in short, what he does is he argues that Jesus Christ is a priest of a different order than the traditional priesthood of Israel. And by being a priest in a different order, then he can say things about Christ that will, in a sense, replace the Levitical order of the priesthood. And he will argue that the priesthood of Jesus Christ is superior to the Levitical priesthood. You may recall on the first Sunday we talked about the fact that many have argued that the audience of Hebrews has to be specifically Jewish and that the threat has to be returned to the Jewish life because of the, all the material about the Levitical priesthood and sacrifices. I commented on that time I'm not totally convinced about that argument. One of the reasons is, is that the whole argument about the Levitical priesthood in Hebrews is based on the tabernacle, which is pre-temple. In other words, it goes back to the very beginning of the Levitical system as described in the early history of the Old Testament. And there are no references to the temple in Hebrews. That might suggest that the argument in Hebrews isn't focused on the literal practice of the Jewish faith at the time Hebrews was written, but on the theological heritage of that perspective. In fact, I tend to think that Hebrews was written after A.D. 70, after the temple had been destroyed by the Roman army in A.D. 70, the temple in Jerusalem, in which sacrifices then were no longer practiced in Judaism. And that Hebrews is, in fact, trying to draw a schematic argument, uh, or shall we say a theologically theoretical argument, about how one approaches God, and that the real issue at stake is not the Jewish sacrificial system per se, but the conviction that in Jesus Christ God has done something new. And this newness, which Hebrews will call the new covenant, is the way of salvation, and that that applies both to Jew and Gentile alike, although that's not the emphasis in Hebrews. Now, in the prologue to Hebrews that we did look at last Sunday, those first three or four verses of Hebrews, we noted that one of the lines in that prologue stated 
that Jesus Christ had made purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now that's the clue in the prologue that the author is going to return to the question of Jesus making purification for sins and sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Both aspects of that are very important in the argument of Hebrews, especially the purification for sins, perhaps, but also Jesus' presence with the majesty on high, as we will see in the development of the argument. Then in chapter 2, verse 17, where he is still talking about Jesus' relationship to the angels and Jesus' relationship to humanity, he says in verse 17, Therefore he, Jesus, had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. Now there again is a clue that Hebrews is going to talk about Jesus as a high priest. If you're reading Hebrews for the very first time, you don't know that yet. If you're listening for the first time, you don't know yet that Hebrews is going to launch into this long discussion of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. But here he mentions it, and notice he says that he had to become like his brothers and sisters so that he could be a high priest. We will learn later in Hebrews that one of the requirements for a priest in the Levitical system and in priesthood in general is that the priest be able to identify with the people that the priest represents. The priest needs to be like them so that the priest can represent them to God. That's a, considered a key point of identity. And we'll talk about that in our second topic today, the humanity of Jesus and how important it is in the argument of Hebrews <clears throat> excuse me, that Jesus Christ be identified with humanity. Chapter 3, verse 1. Therefore, brothers and sisters, holy partners in a heavenly calling, consider that Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, was faithful to the one who appointed him, namely God, just as Moses was faithful. And this is the discussion we noticed last Sunday of how the author to the Hebrews compares Jesus Christ with Moses. But again, there's just that one little line in the introduction in which he calls Jesus the high priest. Again, a clue that this is going to become a topic of discussion. The first real discussion of Jesus as high priest begins in 4.14 and goes through 5.10. Hebrews 4.14 through 5.10, the author presents Jesus as high priest and climaxes in 5.10 with telling us the order of the priesthood to which Jesus belongs, namely the order of Melchizedek. We're going to talk about that in a few moments. That's so intriguing. Now, 4.14. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. This is now the presentation of Jesus as a high priest. Notice now it immediately introduces 
the idea that we just read from 2.17. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have a high priest who in every respect has been tested as we are. This stresses the identity of the high priest with the people. With this one exception, yet without sin. Now we're going to learn later that one of the things Hebrews argues is that all Levitical high priests also sinned. So that they had that identification with the people they represented as well. The only place Jesus doesn't have identification is at the point of sin. But what Hebrews stresses and we'll come back to is that Jesus was tempted or tested like we are. We'll come back to that. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness. Now, notice how he develops the traditional concept of the high priest starting in chapter 5. Every high priest chosen from among mortals is put in charge of things pertaining to God on their behalf to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's the high priest's job. He is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is subject to weakness. Now that's the theme of one of the qualifications of the high priest. The high priest identifies with his people. He understands what it is to be weak. He understands the tendency to be ignorant and wayward so he can represent the people. And he... Because of this, he has to offer sacrifice here, this is the Levitical system, for his own sins as well as for the sins of the people. And one does not presume to take this honor, but takes it only when one is called of God, just as Aaron was. Aaron, the fountain of this priestly tradition. So a priest is called of God, must identify with the people, must do the sacrifices for sins. So, Hebrews argues, Christ did not glorify himself, becoming a high priest, but he was appointed by God as a high priest. You are my son, today I have begotten you. For he says in another place, that's from Psalm 2, he says in another place, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. That's Psalm 110. Then he talks about how in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers. We'll come back to that when we talk about Jesus' humanity, but the point is here that Jesus has identified with the people like a high priest is supposed to identify with the people. Having been designated by God, verse 10, a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, the author of Hebrews uses frequently Old Testament passages. Hebrews is replete with Old Testament passages. And Hebrews uses these to build every phase of his argument. Maybe I could just have a personal note just thinking about this this morning. I, I, this is my 33rd year as a seminary New Testament professor. I know I don't look old enough to have done it. Or as my younger 
my younger daughter just loved it this summer when we went to Zimbabwe to visit Victoria Falls, which is just absolutely spectacular. And we entered the Victoria Falls National Park, and we were asking the guard or ranger there for just a little advice as to, you know, which way do we start walking and what's involved, you know, how many, how long. How many hours do we need to plan on being here? We weren't quite sure. The guard kind of looked at me and he said, Well, old man, he said, you know, it'll take you a while to kind of walk like this. Oh, my younger daughter, for that day on, said, Well, old man... So, the point of my story is this. When I took my very first year of graduate study, which was 41 years ago, my favorite professor was a man named Berkeley Michelson. Wonderful man, now deceased. And he is the first professor I ever had who one day said to me, You know, David you should consider being a New Testament professor. And I was ready for it. I mean, when he said that, it almost convinced me that I should be a New Testament professor. It took just a little longer. But I mention that, I think of that, because he had written his doctoral dissertation on the Old Testament quotations in Hebrews at the University of Chicago. So, as one of his students 41 years ago, I heard a lot about these quotations because he often used Hebrews as an example in his teaching since that's what he knew best. And maybe that's when I first fell in love with Hebrews as well. I don't, I don't remember specifically. But Hebrews draws a great deal on the Old Testament in general. And here it draws particularly on two Psalms. And let me just say this about the early church use of the Psalms. As you know, the Psalms were incredibly important in the life and worship of Israel. They had an inherent power and beauty, as we know. And Israel loved its Psalms. And they were the basis of the worship in Israel. And we know that the community at Qumran, the Dead Sea Scroll community, which is famous, which gives us that wonderful insight into a specific Jewish community just prior to the time of Jesus, they copied the Psalms, they loved the Psalms, they read the Psalms. In fact, they had 155 Psalms. And there, there actually was a little bit of dispute at this time as to exactly how many psalms were in the psalms. And they studied these psalms. And they quoted the psalms as much as anything. And that's the same with the New Testament. The psalms are the backbone of the Bible that the New Testament uses, along with Isaiah. But the psalms were incredibly important. Now, these psalms, 2 and 110, are often what we call royal psalms. That is, they were addressed to the leader of Israel. Now I know as Christians we have come so thoroughly to call them messianic psalms. 
because the early church applied them to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of these psalms, as if they were talking about Jesus specifically and the Messiah. But it's probably helpful for us to know that these psalms were originally addressed to the ruler of Israel, maybe even David. So when it says, you are my son, today I have begotten you, in the original context that meant, you, the king of Israel, are like my son, and today I have installed you in office, I have begotten you. Or the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. This is a royal psalm. It's God inviting the king of Israel to sit at his right hand. And he even says, you're in the priesthood of Melchizedek. Now, why Melchizedek? Because Melchizedek, remember, was the king of Salem. We learn that from Genesis 14. And that is presumed to be the background of the city of Jerusalem. And so that the king or Melchizedek, has an identification in Jewish thought, Israeli thought in the Old Testament, as an identification with Jerusalem. So when the king of Israel, like David, was going to sit on the throne, he was then, according to Psalm 110, perceived of as belonging to the tradition of Melchizedek, who was the king of Salem. So that's the original form of these psalms. Now, in the early church, they looked at these psalms and they said, Aha! They're talking about something greater. They're talking about the ultimate Son of God, namely Jesus Christ, who fulfills these psalms in a special way. So that's where our heritage comes from, of reading these psalms, and that's how Hebrews took them. Yes? Uh, let me come, I'll come to Melchizedek in about two minutes. Wonderful question. We'll, we'll talk more about Melchizedek in just one minute. So, that's where these psalms come from. Now, Hebrews identifies Jesus with Melchizedek. And of course, there's a deep reason which he later explains. And that's because it's obvious that Jesus did not come from the tribe of Levi. Everybody knew in the early church that Jesus came from the tribe of Judah. And because Jesus came from the tribe of Judah, he couldn't be a Levitical priest... So if the author to Hebrews wants to make Jesus a priest, this is what I think is so clever, he has to find a different priesthood for him. And the only other priesthood alluded to in the Old Testament is Melchizedek, and especially in Psalm 110, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Aha! The perfect text. The perfect text to give Jesus Christ priesthood. But more than that, now to come to your question, this whole question of Melchizedek. This Melchizedek thing is really strange. Now you remember, Melchizedek is mentioned in Scripture only in Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, apart from Hebrews. 
In Genesis 14, remember Abraham, who's a foreigner, coming into the land, encounters Melchizedek. Now, what does Abraham do? Tell me. What does he give Melchizedek? A tithe. And he pays, as it were, Melchizedek. Now, socially speaking, what is Abraham doing? Can you put yourself in the social... What's he doing? Well, yes, he is acknowledging his superiority. Why does he want to do that? Protection. Who, Who runs the land that Abraham is standing on? Melchizedek. Abraham is, in a sense, paying for safe passage. Abraham is not dumb. You know, he's, here he is in the presence of Melchizedek, and he knows if he wants to be there, it would be a good idea to be on Melchizedek's good side. So he pays Melchizedek, as it were. He gives Melchizedek the tithe. And Genesis treats this as a little bit mysterious. Of course, The author of Genesis knows that Abraham is the real hero for his audience, right? Abraham is the one who's called of God. Abraham is the one who's going to trust God and so on. So Genesis isn't really interested in Melchizedek. It's interested in Abraham. But it mentions Melchizedek, and he kind of comes out of nowhere. We don't have any information about him, and so Genesis even says... You know, he didn't have a father or mother. He kind of just appears out of nowhere. Which is Genesis's way of saying, you know, we don't know anything about him. And then he's forgotten, as it were. Until Psalm 110. Well, in Psalm 110, Melchizedek is remembered in order to, in a sense, justify the king of Israel in his Jerusalem setting. Jerusalem was picked for a capital like a lot of capitals are picked because at that moment nobody else was interested in that piece of real estate. So it was neutral, like picking Washington, D.C. or Canberra, Australia, places that get picked for capitals when it is presumed that nobody is interested in that particular spot and the different factions in the country can accept it as the place of the capital. Now the next time we learn about Melchizedek is from the Dead Sea Scroll community. The Qumran community, that's that community that lived, I didn't remember to get the pen. That's my fault, not yours, Karen. Um, But if you imagine the Dead Sea, sort of like a long peanut, Qumran is up in this corner on the shore of the Dead Sea, not very far from Jericho, as those of you who've been there know. And this community, among other things, believed that they were the true followers of God. They actually came out to live there in the desert because they were all priests, by the way. 
They came out to live in the desert because they thought the priests in the temple in Jerusalem were corrupt. A true statement. They were corrupt. So they'd compromised so much with the Romans. They were corrupt. And so these priests came out in the desert to try to be pure priests who would really serve God, who would really wait for the Messiah, who would really be the ones on God's side for the redemption of Israel. And they lived out there in the desert about 200 years until in the Roman war, the Rome wiped out Qumran in A.D. 68. That's when the Roman army came and destroyed it. Two years before they destroyed the temple. But the Qumran community living there, worshiping God, speculating about what God was going to do, the Qumran community believed that this strange figure, Melchizedek, was an almighty divine person. They perceived of Melchizedek, in essence, as one who sat at God's right hand, like it says in Psalm 110, that Melchizedek was really God's divine agent, even God's divine agent to forgive sins. And they even called Melchizedek God, even though they were monotheistic Jews. They called Melchizedek God. And they left us a writing about Melchizedek, and I thought I'd read you part of it. Now, the only problem in reading it is like all these manuscripts from the Dead Sea Scrolls, in certain places there are holes in the manuscript. Due to age. So, in some cases, it doesn't quite make sense, but I'll do my best. All right. God said... Proclaim liberty to the captives. That's Isaiah 61, a passage Jesus also quoted, you will remember. The interpretation of this is that God will assign them to the sons of heaven and to the inheritance of Melchizedek. For he will cast, God will cast their lot among the portions of Melchizedek who will return them there and will proclaim to them liberty, forgiving them all their iniquities. Now just in that opening paragraph, do you see that Melchizedek is perceived as the one who will fulfill Isaiah 61 and forgive people their sins? Now this is, pro- this is written before Jesus is born. This might be 100 B.C. or 50 B.C that this was written. So here we have a Jewish group who's understanding Melchizedek in terms that later the church will reserve for Jesus. And so on. For, For this is the moment of the year of grace for Melchizedek. He will, by his strength, judge the holy ones of God, executing judgment as it is written concerning him in the songs of David, And then it quotes some psalms, which I'll skip. And Melchizedek will avenge the vengeance of the judgments of God. This is the day of... Hold the manuscript. 
concerning which God spoke through Isaiah the prophet. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of the messenger that proclaims peace, who brings good news. So on and so on and so on. And your God is Melchizedek, who will save the people from the hand of Satan. Thank you. I appreciate that. Good. All right. After the fact, that's supposed to be the Dead Sea. And here's the Jordan River. And here's Jericho. And here's Jerusalem. There's Bethlehem. There's Qumran. There's Masada. For those of you who've been there, you'll maybe recognize that this isn't too far off. And that gives you a little bit of an idea of where things were located. Now, this text about Melchizedek, I think, is a stunning text from the Jewish context of the origins of the church and Christianity. And we can see, we, we don't know, of course, whether the author of Hebrews knew this text. He doesn't specifically cite it. But I would argue, granted, can't prove it, I would argue that the author of Hebrews was an extraordinary, intelligent, research-oriented Jewish person who knew the traditions in Alexandria, Egypt, that we identify with Philo the philosopher, and who knew all the Jewish theological traditions, probably including the Melchizedekian tradition from Qumran. He was in touch with these things. He knew the currents of Jewish thought. And so when Hebrews takes up Jesus as the Melchizedekian high priest, he probably is aware of the fact that there's a Jewish tradition that has already identified Melchizedek as God's right hand. <coughs> someone even called God. Someone who proclaims liberty to the captive. Someone who forgives sins. Someone who opposes Satan. Someone who executes the judgments of God. In essence, the role that Jesus plays in the theology of Hebrews. So it's this very stunning passage and gives the author of Hebrews a way to talk about Jesus Christ in exalted terms, in terms of the priesthood. Now he returns to the priestly discussion after, uh, he has after 510 where he announces that Jesus is a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Wow. He has one of his long passages of encouragement that go in from 5.11 through 6.12. Then, beginning in 6.13, he returns, in essence, to the discussion of the priesthood and ends up in 6.20 by talking about Jesus, a forerunner on our behalf, 
has entered, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And then, beginning in chapter 7, Hebrews gives some discussion of this Melchizedekian history. It reviews what it says in Genesis 14 initially, and he discusses that. So he says, you know, he was without father, without mother, without genealogy, he had no beginning or end of life. And so he resembled the Son of God. He was a priest forever. He capitalizes on those ambiguities out of the story. And then say, he says, look, he was really great. Abraham. Abraham gave him a tenth. Now, everybody in Hebrews' audience knows that Abraham is really the greatest. Abraham is Jew number one. He is, I mean, what are the people of God called always? The sons of Abraham. Even in the early church, they're called the sons of Abraham. And in Judaism, they were the sons of Abraham. But Melchizedek must have really been something because Abraham paid to him. And he collected tithes from Abraham. And then the principle is in verse 7. This is Hebrews' clever argument. It is beyond dispute. Don't argue with me. It's beyond dispute that the inferior is blessed by the superior. In other words, Melchizedek was actually greater than Abraham. So Hebrews wants to argue at this point. And then he draws this dramatic conclusion in the remaining verses of this paragraph in which he says, now let's face it, when Abraham paid tithes to Melchizedek, when Abraham granted that Melchizedek was even greater, who was in Abraham's loin? This was the concept that, you know, all the unborn children are potentially there. He says, Levi was in his loin. So, I mean, if you want to look at it this way, my friends, Hebrews says, Levi paid tribute to Melchizedek. Argument sealed. You see where he's going with this? Melchizedekian priests are greater than Levitical priests. He's got his whole case sewed up by 710. He's going to talk about it yet for a couple more pages. And even gets a little repetitive because he's really going to drive this point home. But he's made his point now. The real thing is in heaven. So the Levitical priesthood not only involves a priest who sins, not only involves a priest who has to go into the Holy of Holies every year, but actually he doesn't go into the real one. He goes only into a copy. And fourth, he takes the blood of bulls and goats. He takes the blood of animals, paid tithes, to Melchizedek, so goes his argument. And this argument probably wouldn't wash today. But in Hebrews' context, this argument sells. Levi paid tribute to Melchizedek. 
Now, we don't have enough time to elaborate everything, and as I say, Hebrews repeats itself. But what he goes on to argue in the rest of chapter 7, chapter 8, chapter 9, and the first 18 verses of chapter 10, that's a long section. A very long section. He argues primarily that the Levitical priesthood was not perfect. Why wasn't it perfect? Well, first of all, the Levitical high priests themselves had sinned. Now, they knew how to identify with the people, but they had sinned. Second, how often did the Levitical high priest go into the Holy of Holies? Once a year. So it was effective. Sins were forgiven. But it had to be done again every year. Year after year. Year after year. That Levitical high priest had to go and atone for the sins. Third, where was the Levitical high priest going? He was going into the Holy of Holies, the back tent as it were, and Hebrews says that that tent was just a copy or a shadow of the real Holy of Holies. Now, where was the real one? This is not a hard question. In heaven. The real Holy of Holies is in heaven. And the Moses Tabernacle Holy of Holies is a copy. And again, he can capitalize on the fact that in the Bible it said, God said to Moses, build the tabernacle according to the pattern that I will give you. Hebrews says, oh, great, there was a pattern. There was a real one, and the earthly tabernacle is just a copy. Now, here is where Hebrews appears to be developing what we call Alexandrian Jewish philosophy. In Alexandria, Egypt, the intellectual center at this time, no longer Athens, that folded by 300 B.C. Alexandria now has the largest library in the world, richest city apart from Rome, thanks in part to Cleopatra. Just this incredible center, more Jews than Jerusalem, and it was in Alexandria, Egypt, where the study of Greek philosophy focused. The Platonic tradition. This is where all the Plato scholars lived and taught at this time. And remember, I think it's remember, isn't it? Plato talked about the, the, the ideas and then the copies of the ideas that, you know, this... I, I, I always remember in philosophy, you know, this, this bench is just a copy. You know, and it, it's, it has benchness in this great idea that Plato had of benchness. And then this is just a, a copy. And Plato had that sort of structure that got developed in the post-Plato philosophers. And some of the Jewish philosophers bought into this system, especially Philo. Philo was the, the most brilliant Jewish mind of the first century B.C. 
And Philo says in his own writings, he said, God has called me to interpret the Bible, meaning the Old Testament, according to the categories of Plato. That's my mission in life. Because Plato helps me get to the deeper spiritual meaning of what the Scripture says. I can use the categories of Plato to really squeeze out all the meaning from the text. And so Philo wrote commentaries on, especially Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. And Philo wrote these commentaries in which he uses the philosophy of Plato to get at the meaning of the text as he sees it. And so Philo himself kept talking about the the reality in heaven and the copy on earth. And Paul does this a little bit. Remember in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the Christ as the second Adam, and there was the first Adam in heaven. And that goes straight back to Philo, because Philo argues that the Adam who was on earth, the Adam of Adam and Eve, he was made according to the copy of the, the heavenly Adam. And God copied it and made earthly Adam. And when Jesus came, Paul says, he was the real copy of the heavenly Adam. And thus he could redeem humanity. That's part of Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 15. I know this is getting kind of heavy. Very philosophical, I know. But let's face it. Paul and the author of the Hebrews were pretty bright people. And they knew these currents in Jewish thinking. And that influenced the way they write. So the author of Hebrews, in all likelihood, had some of this Alexandrian, Jewish, Platonic, philosophical background. And so he can argue that the tabernacle that Moses built was just a copy. It wasn't the real thing. The real thing is in heaven. So the Levitical priesthood not only involves a priest who sins, not only involves a priest who has to go into the Holy of Holies every year, but actually he doesn't go into the real one. He goes only into a copy. And fourth, he takes the blood of bulls and goats. He takes the blood of animals into the Holy of Holies. Now, it's effective on its own terms. But you can already see, you know, how he's going to argue. What did Jesus do? First of all, Jesus could identify with people like a high priest. And we've got to get to that. But Jesus didn't have sin. Secondly, Jesus didn't have to go in every year. How often did Jesus die on the cross? Once. Jesus died once for all, Hebrews says. That was it. He died once. That's it. Never has to be repeated. And he then went into the Holy of Holies. And which Holy of Holies did he go into? The real one. He ascended into heaven, went into the presence of God, the real Holy of Holies sat down at God's right hand. And he didn't take the blood of bulls and goats. He took his own blood. Clearly better than the blood of bulls and goats. Into the real sanctuary. 
Therefore, the high priesthood of Jesus is clearly better. And if it's better, and if it's eternal, then it replaces the Levitical priesthood. And so Hebrews goes on to argue that if it's better, then the old must not have really had what it takes. And so several times he says that the Levitical priesthood could never really do it. It could never bring salvation. It could never bring perfection. It could never bring the ultimate blessings of God. All it ever could do would be to hint, to give a shadow, to give a foretaste, to give a pointer. But when Jesus came, then the real thing could happen. Now, one of the places where he talks about that, well, two things. One, in chapter 8, we must notice that in the midst of all this, when he's saying that the old, the old just doesn't work, he quotes Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. That famous text in Jeremiah where Jeremiah talks about the new covenant and how the day will come when God will establish a new covenant with his people. Now, by the way, just for the record, we should know that the Qumran community did call itself, on occasion, the New Covenant. By which they meant, in our terms, the True Covenant. This is the real covenant with God. Not those corrupt priests in Jerusalem. We know that they've sold out. But we here at Qumran, we represent the real covenant with God, which is so real, so true, we could call it the new covenant. God has made a new covenant with us to represent Israel. Now, the early church took the same stance. Paul does this for 2 Corinthians. The church represents the new covenant. And Hebrews does this. The church represents the new covenant that Jeremiah talked about. The other passage to note is in chapter 10. This is a strange one. This is from Psalm 45. And it says, starting in verse 5, Christ came into the, When Christ came into the world, God said, Sacrifices and offerings, or the psalmist said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you take no pleasure. Then I said, See, God, I have come to do your will, O God. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. Now if you look at Psalm 45, you will see it doesn't say anything about a body being prepared for me. Because our Psalm 45 in our Bible is translated from the Hebrew, that is the original text, and it talks about ears. But all the New Testament, none of the New Testament authors read from the Hebrew Bible. They were all Greek-speaking folk, and they read from the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Septuagint. And in the Septuagint, it does say, there was a body prepared for me. Now, how the Septuagint got there from the Hebrew is... A, I don't fully understand, and B, it's too complicated to try to explain. But the Septuagint, yes. 
It's Psalm 40? Oh, I'm, thank you, Jeanette. It's Psalm 40. Psalm 45 is, Thy throne, O God, is forever. I got mixed up. Thank you very much. Jeanette has a regular practice of correcting me. <laughs> so I'm very used to it. So, Psalm 40, thank you very much. I'm glad to get that straight. Verses 6 to 8, I do believe. In which this little paragraph in Hebrews 10 comes from. But you see what the author is doing. He is now taking this, and notice he can take advantage of this critique that was always in Israel, that God doesn't desire sacrifices. God desires the truth from the heart. Now, never in Israel did that mean stop sacrificing. It always meant that the attitude was more important than the sacrifice. But now Hebrews, of course, takes it to mean stop sacrificing. God doesn't desire sacrifices. The Son came, and He came to do the will of God. And so Hebrews interprets Psalm 40, get that straight, when the psalm says, you neither desire nor take pleasures in sacrifices, and he adds, I've come to do your will, what conclusion does Hebrews draw? Ten, uh, what verse am I in? Nine. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second. Hebrews explicitly says, <coughs> I'm going, God, by choosing Jesus as the Melchizedekian priest who comes in the body prepared for him to do the perfect sacrifice in the true holy of holies, abolishes the first. Case closed. And at the end of this whole section, 10.18, this is what it says. No, I got the wrong passage. Well, that's all right. I, I don't now immediately put my finger on the passage I wanted to quote. That's happened to me before. And, no, okay. That's all right, dear. You go to choir. I'll survive. But Hebrews says that the first covenant is passing away. It's becoming obsolete. So that, in essence, is the argument about the high priesthood of Christ. Now, I've only got about six minutes left. I need to say something very connected to that about the humanity of Christ. No text in the New Testament emphasizes the humanity of Jesus like Hebrews does. Now, the primary reason, as you now know, for emphasizing the humanity of Jesus is that it is essential that the high priest be able to identify with the people the high priest represents. And therefore, since Jesus is going to represent humanity, he has to be a human in order to represent them before God. And so already in chapter 2, Verses 10 through 18, we have the first strong passage about Jesus' humanity. 
It was fitting that God, in bringing many children to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through sufferings. 14. Since therefore the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared these same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. Verse 17. Therefore he had to become like his brothers and sisters in every respect, so that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest. 18. Because he himself was tested by what he suffered, he is able to help those who are being uh, rested. Chapter 4, verse 14. We have a great high priest, verse 15, who is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he was tested in every respect as we are. Chapter 5, verse 7. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears, and he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, He learned obedience through what he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. Now Hebrews is very, very strong, and this contradicts what the church has often felt comfortable with, because the church ended up stressing the deity of Jesus Christ. He was really God. Jesus Christ was very God of very God. We confess that in all the confessions in the history of the church. This is what we talked about last Sunday. And so the church has always been nervous with these passages in Hebrews. That Jesus was tested just like we are. That Jesus learned obedience. That Jesus learned obedience through what he suffered. That Jesus cried. That Jesus cried out to God. Even though he was a son. Jesus actually suffered just like the rest of humanity and learned obedience. When we get to chapter 12, it will say that one evidence of being God's children is that God disciplines us. God, like any good parent, God disciplines his children. And in that sense, God disciplined Jesus. He suffered. He was tested. And because he suffered, he learned obedience. He learned obedience. This is the real humanity of Jesus. He's not a fake human being. Jesus wasn't someone who walked around that looked like a human and inside he chuckled and said, I'm really God, you know. I'll zap you if you don't be careful. That is how actually the church sometimes portrayed Jesus, even by the second century. Jesus was a real human being. I was had occasion this week because one of my students asked me for some help. 
Clement of Alexandria, Alexandria, you now recognize, Egypt, one of the early brilliant thinkers of the church, 200 A.D. Pardon me for saying this, but Clement was fighting against those who denied the humanity of Jesus. Fighting against them, because he, as a good Christian, wanted to emphasize that Jesus was really human. But even Clement, especially because he was from Alexandria in the Platonic tradition, had trouble with Jesus' humanity. And he said in one passage that Jesus ate and drank for appearance's sake. And of course, he never defecated. Now, you understand what a struggle that was for Clement to really admit. I, one of my colleagues, this is a terrible story to tell, but Gordon Fee is a very famous New Testament scholar. And whenever he taught the life of Jesus, and he was a great basketball player, Gordon Fee was. Great basketball player. He would come into class, and he was a very pious man. Students just loved his piety. And he would come into class, not the first day, and he'd say, now remember, Jesus wet his diaper, and I can beat him in basketball. And, of course, the students were all shook up. What he wanted to try to communicate was that Jesus was really human. Jesus lived a human life. And the mileage Hebrews wants to get out of it is that by living a truly human life, he could be a real high priest. He could do what high priests are supposed to do. Understand the people and represent their case to God. And thus he is a wonderful high priest. He actually learned obedience. That's what Hebrews wants to argue. And of course, what we're going to talk about next Sunday the pilgrim journey of the believers, is that Hebrews is also going to use this, and this is probably the greatest single comfort of Hebrews for all of us, is that although the people in Hebrews are under persecution, and they're threatened with giving up their faith, and they're having a hard time in life, how do they know they can make it? Because Jesus made it. He was a real human who suffered, who learned, who was tested. And if Jesus can make it, Hebrews argues, so can you. Of course, he throws in all the other heroes of faith in chapter 11. So you've got a lot of examples of people who made it. Therefore, Hebrews says, you can make it. But his prime example is that Jesus made it. That's what we'll talk about next Sunday. Now, I have transgressed three minutes into our discussion time. Yes? Well, the question is, what was the significance of the bread and wine that Melchizedek brought out to greet Abraham with? Probably, ultimately, at one level, I don't know. But I think the, the fundamental, cultural, universal answer is that bread and wine symbolizes the very core of nurture and fellowship. 
It's not accidental that the Lord's Supper is bread and wine. It is the core of what is necessary, food and drink. And those were the food and that was the basic food and the basic drink of life in the Middle East. Bread and wine. So I assume that when Melchizedek brought those out, it's a way of showing Abraham hospitality and it's part of the fabric of the culture that then led to the Passover and ultimately the Lord's Supper. Am I on track with what you're interested in? Yes, Alan. Sure. We believe that the scripture is inspired, meaning inspired by God. But the words of scripture are God's words. And yet we see how, in a sense, slightly change your words, but how human the author of Hebrews is. And he uses arguments that might not even be very convincing in our culture. How do we correlate those two realities? Well, that is a centuries-long struggle of the church, to be sure. And it's a struggle that I relive every year I teach with seminary students. Because every student who enters seminary, virtually every one, that's one of their fundamental questions. I think we have to grant a reality that's been hard often for the church to grant. And that is that the Bible had real human authors. And those human authors wrote out of their context. One of the things I often say to my students who study Greek is one way you can see that is you can't see it in the English. But some Greek is a lot harder than others. I think I mentioned that. Hebrews is pretty hard Greek compared, say, to 1 John, which is a piece of cake. First-year students can read 1 John. They can't read Hebrews. It's not that the Holy Spirit had a bad Greek day or you know something like that. It's that the authors wrote out of their level of knowledge, their cultural experience. And so Hebrews writes out of its knowledge, which is Alexandrian Judaism and more sophisticated knowledge of Judaism. And what I believe is that God used the human authors and their preparation and their abilities to communicate. And in the same way that we say Jesus was truly God and truly man, we say the scripture is truly divine and truly human. And there's a mystery in there that we can't fully explain. But I don't think it helps us to deny the human side of scripture because that's what we can most readily observe I've used in the last couple of weeks this great example in my class because I'm teaching the gospel of Luke and you know the, the healing of the woman who had the 12 year flow of blood 
very famous story. It's in Mark and Matthew and Luke. Mark says that this woman who had the 12-year flow of blood, now, you who are women, you know what this would mean in a way that us men don't. She had her period 12, 12 years straight. In addition, in the Hebrew culture, that meant she was unclean. And it says in Mark that she went to many doctors, she spent all her money, and none of them helped her. In fact, she got worse. Luke, if he is a doctor, in his gospel says, this woman consulted many and didn't get well. Notice how he toned it down. He didn't mention doctors. He didn't say she wasted all her money. And he didn't say she got worse. It's pretty clear that when Luke told the story and he was copying from Mark, he didn't want to include this blast at the physicians. It was a very human thing. And yet we'd say he's inspired, meaning he was directly led by God in a way we can't define by through the Spirit to write God's Word. That's how I try to cope with it. I, I remember one time, this is a little extreme, but it really happened. There are four Gospels in the New Testament, and none of them are alike. And that alone is one of the issues here. And I was lecturing one day in class on the reality of the four Gospels, and that each one is different. And a student came up to me after class, I kid you not, backed me up against the wall out in the hallway, and he shook his fist in my face like this. And he was bright red. And he said, Dr. Scholler, God would never give us four Gospels. And he stalked off. Of course, the humor is, God did give us four Gospels. But you see, he couldn't cope with it. He was so taken up with the inspiration half of the equation that he couldn't acknowledge the human dimension of the Bible. He had a hard time. Let's, one more question if we have one. I'll make my answer real short. Okay, well then we'll just stop. Now next week we'll take up the pilgrimage journey of the believers in Hebrews. God bless you.